to me, this is a dream play. That mm. opening scene, everyone is tired. No one's got enough sleep. And when you think about that on a cosmic scale, if you can't sleep, you can't dream. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today I'm talking to Jasmine Lee Jones, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Drama, about Lorraine Hansberry's classic play, A Raisin in the Sun. Jasmine Lee Jones is a British writer and actor from North London. Her first play, Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner, was staged at London's Royal Court Theatre when she was only 21 years old. Her most recent play is called Curious. A Raisin the Sun was one of the first plays I read, and I remember I read it when I was at secondary school. We would have these kind of enrichment weeks, and I was so bored, I just started reading it, and I finished it in a day. And I'd never seen a family that felt like mine, even though, obviously, my family, my heritage is Afro-Caribbean and British. I have family here, but we've never really sunk roots in the US in the same way. And... I was like, this is my family. And I didn't realize that we were worthy of the same dramatic realization and that our problems were, which is a sad thing, but a tremendous thing to realize because I feel like it's given me my calling as a writer that someone can literally have a single play. You know, August Wilson had the century cycle, but she had one that was considered canonical in her time. Whether it should be that one and Sidney Brewstein is up for debate. But for someone's impact, with that one piece of work to be so massive speaks volumes and I, it's like the trunk of a massive tree i can see all the branches that have come off of it in such a vivid way i mean i've been thinking so much about desensitization and reading the play i think it's i think it might be act two when travis goes out to play and then they're all playing with the rat mm. it's one of the deepest horrors that a child is in such a situation of poverty that they're Playing with a rat, that's their entertainment. And I've just been thinking so much about the desensitization to horror. One of the branches I see coming off of this play is Jordan Peele, which sounds like quite a bizarre comparison, but what he's done in his work is, I always say, like, Get Out isn't social horror, it's social realism. I remember being in that cinema and sat next to a white couple and they were jumping and I was sat next to my family and we weren't jumping at all because to us, like, that happened to me on Thursday. You know, Toni Morrison talks about making the familiar strange and the strange familiar, which is what Hansberry's doing in this play. Mm. And so through the lens of that kind of humanity, when Black people start to recognise their humanity and their right to, I was about to use the word equitable, but it's just basic living conditions, to not live in a property with rats or cockroaches. I mean, when we think about the absurdity and the horror of living in those conditions that we're so acclimatized to and desensitized to. And like being in New York now and overhearing conversations about the state of properties people are living in, it's got to the state that we're desensitized. Well, no, I think maybe the powers that be are desensitized to it. But if we were so desensitized, we wouldn't be complaining about it because we know that we deserve better. I think it's the fight to dream which i when i was rereading the play i mm. thought about how to me this is a dream play that opening scene everyone is tired everyone is tired no one's got enough sleep and when you think about that on a kind of cosmic scale if you can't sleep you can't dream literally quite literally and that's why i say this is a dream play everyone's fighting for their right to dream 
and the different generations are dreaming differently in ways that clash and are not understood by each other at certain points. There's so many... Sometimes I speak to African-American playwrights who have quite a disdain for Lorraine Hunsbury. But it's not... Interesting, really? It's not (laughs) toward her. It's not toward her. It's the fact that this is heralded as the great black play. And it fits into those naturalistic conventions. And, you know, some people feel like, why doesn't Adrian Kennedy get more attention? Or like Mm. Alice Childress, people also say, you know, and it is also a function of racism to have like the great black female playwright. And she was that in her time. She was famous. But I think what she does in this play is so deeply revolutionary. And I think those critiques shouldn't be directed at her. They should be directed at white elitist artistic circles as opposed to the person doing the work. Because this work is a great work. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the question there is more about, or maybe the critique, I should say, is more Mm. about the audience for theatre, right? Because the audience for theatre is so overwhelmingly white Mm. and bourgeois. And so what ends up getting lauded, perhaps, is the plays that are acceptable to the primary audience members or that speak to that experience in some way or that speaks in a language that is more familiar to that audience, perhaps. Yeah, it's a great grand question. And even one of my notes I was writing yesterday is who is she writing this play for? Because one of the stage directions, let me just... Can we talk uh, about... We need to talk about the stage directions too. I love the stage directions for this play. I mean, these are some, you know, like the opening stage directions, it's like a page and a half of description just setting up what that room looks like. And it's so highly literary. Like, it's using the furniture to set the psychological tone of the characters in interesting ways. Yeah. You know what I wrote in Truth when I was rereading it? I was like... (laughs) she's an overwriter like me and I don't think there's anything well like I'm trying to cut down I'm writing a film now and it's 170 pages Magnolia is about is around that that length but you can't really send in a film script that's 170 pages I know where it comes from in me and it comes from the same place in her I think I'm presuming this desire for everything to have a purpose which I think is such a grand desire such a beautiful desire and the desire of a dreamer as well that everything has meaning. But the stage direction I was talking about is she will be known among her people as a settled woman, Mm. which makes me think, (laughs) who is she describing this for? She will be known, because if she was writing this to give to her people, she wouldn't have to say she will be known among her people. But she's writing with an awareness. And it's that whole question that I confront and every Black artist in the theatre confronts. And if they tell you they haven't, they're lying is this for white people? And it's a hard, it's a hard place to be in because it's not yeah. a popular, you know, you don't want to feel like a sellout. You don't want to feel like you're putting other people before your people. You have to have an awareness, which I think she did to kind of get the stories about black people and for black people even in motion within this current structure that we have, which I'm sure she had plans and was fighting so hard to change. You know, rereading it the spirit of it is so not i want to prove our humanity to white people i think it is for black people to play yeah it so is deeply rooted in reclamation of our right to dream what happens to a dream deferred you know i love that poem and it took me years to understand i understood it as a child but not to the extent i understand it now and that last line which is another horror or does it explode and i think the job of the artist is remember 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 this is not normal we don't have to live like this which i think is what she's doing in this play 
it is true historically like white elite in theater want to pick the one the exceptional negro or the exceptional negress or exceptional black person of any gender but there's a reason why this play is redone and redone and redone and it's not mm. just because there's truth in what you're saying about the comfort within the structure it brings to mind arthur miller and she loved eugene o'neill and loved sean o'casey and there is comfort within that but i think she's really trojan horsing it because some of the ideas in this play are very very dangerous for the white the early and even people that write in kind of reaction to a play like this and there have been playwrights that do that they wouldn't be able to do that without this play existing mm. you know it's such a cornerstone of slack imaginative practice we should critique but it should come from a place of love not a place of annihilation i think sometimes we could be really yeah in the kind of black artistic community and the black theater community can be really kind of um the critiques can come from a place of destruction and not creation mm. and one of the feelings that i had especially in relation to all those other plays that we were talking about like of the era right the eugene o'neill's and the arthur miller's and the tennessee williams it was just incredible era for drama on the American stage. And most of their quote-unquote classic plays are dramas that are built around these dysfunctional family dynamics. And I feel like her play is definitely in conversation with all of those plays, but I also feel like it does that thing that I think all great art does, where it eats all that stuff up and then turns it into something else, you know? And I think there's something else that you see here starts to develop towards the middle of the play where the outside world starts to creep in in ways that I don't think it necessarily does in those plays by the white playwrights. Suddenly you start to have like the entrance of these back to Africa politics, which were not mm. particularly fashionable at that moment. And then like Mr. Lindner shows up and starts offering them money to not move into the white neighborhood. And all of that stuff is this outside world that makes you aware that these characters, as much as they are dreaming, their dreams are restricted. And and they're restricted not just by each other and not just as part of this dysfunctional family dynamic. They're restricted by this dysfunctional cultural dynamic mm -hmm. in which they're all living. And the way that she is able to weave those social forces into the dynamic of this family full of dreamers and their stifled dreams is really what makes it unique among that particular kind mm -hmm. of play and radical, too. See, I don't know if you read the the version you were reading the, the one that i was reading they had restored a scene or two that did not yeah. appear and the one where she cuts all her hair off so you can see the natural afro is that usually cut that was it was not in the original production isn't that amazing that didn't appear in the play for a long time and it was really fascinating to think about like it was radical without that and it was a huge success without that but like you know she had all this stuff going on in that play that was so far ahead of its time 100 percent, and that's the other yeah. reason why i get so angry when people say oh erase them it's not because of the play it's that classic thing of like i don't know what's the version of my generation or i'm not gonna watch succession because well no that's not quite right i'm not gonna watch something <laughs> the sopranos watching, but because it's really popular and it doesn't mean that it's not good but like within the context of a time it was 1959 i mean that's always my thing i I didn't know that natural hair scene was cut. I know about, I saw the production at the public end of last year and the scene with Mrs. Johnson I'd never seen. 
in the play because I think that was another one that was actually cut originally. Yeah, I think that was one. I think that those two. Yeah, yeah. This does add something different to the play because you realize they're going to a place where white people are probably going to kill them and or try to kill them at the very least because. You know, and young different black. I remember reading that as a teenager. I was definitely a teenager when I read that book. And someone threw a brick through her window, and it nearly hit. Her. I think she was six. Lorraine Hansberry, and that kind of sense of the danger and the complication of dreaming, which I really think Asagai is talking about. And well, that argument is just amazing between them, Neith and Asagai. Mm. Yeah, they might hit us in the head with bricks and try to kill us, but we won't stop dreaming. He's a revolutionary dreamer, Asuga. He's like, yeah, I probably will be killed. And there will be someone who tries to be corrupt. But that's a part of the dream. And that scene between Benitha and Asuga seems to be so deeply rooted in that understanding of we will lose lives in this process. That's not a kind of, in a sacrificial way, it's inevitable, but that should not hinder our ability to dream because mm. someone's violence against us is not determinant of our value. There's a really interesting connection here between dreaming and dignity. These dreams are often cast here, I think, as imaginations of what it would be like to live a dignified life. And so on the one hand, you've got Walter and his imagination of it is to just be rich and to have money and to not have to do the things that he does without having made a choice. And Benita, I think, is probably the most idealistic in some ways. I feel like her dreams are are probably the biggest because she has multiple dreams, right? Like she's she's somebody who's like imagining multiple pathways, right? Like I could be a doctor. I could be married to this rich guy. I could go to Nigeria with this other guy. I think she's like in a constant state of dreaming, but all of them seem to be wanting to dream themselves out of the current conditions into a state where dignity can be taken for granted. And the external forces that are making that impossible, I think, are what to me anyway, force them back on each other to counter each other's dreams. I actually think Mama's the biggest, uh, I keep saying it in my British accent, but Lena, I'll say Lena Younger because it sounds, I can't take myself seriously in that accent, but like Lena Younger is the biggest dreamer because she has the ability to empathize before anyone else in this play. Even when she doesn't really understand why her son wants to buy a liquor store, Mm. she accepts that lack of understanding between them. She can't quite It's interesting, her relationship with Benita, she can't quite get there in terms of believing that there's no God, which is, she has the ability to go, I don't get this thing, but I believe it is real for you. And that dream of, Mm. I don't understand you, but this is my offering. I love how Cornel West talks about this play and he connects Mama's Hope in this play and her ability to love with a love supreme, John Coltrane, Mm. that that kind of, and it's interesting because I was listening to it when I was reading the play yesterday. And I was like, it is jazz. She's written it in such a jazz structure and it's hidden because it looks like it's not experimental because it's in that three-act structure. But that opening scene is is so jazz. The, the recurrent motifs of, is the check coming today? Mm. It's almost like if you put it on a score, the same things would come up at a similar time or they would be just off. You know, it really is music, the way she's written this play. And yeah. What do you think about Ruth? and her dreams. As I was formulating something to say about dignity and dreams, I was listing in my head, like, okay, here's Walter's dream, here's Benita's dream, Lena, I can kind of see some of that. But like Ruth, I was I was having a hard time in my mind 
there's the pregnancy that's happening and she's decided to end the pregnancy and to me it, it like she's almost not capable of dreaming anymore she seems to me like she's not a symbol she's not written as a symbol but ideologically what i hear when i hear her voice in its purest form on the page is Afro-pessimism, actually. Mm. I wonder how she would benefit from going to Nigeria. I think she'd probably mm. get more out of it than Benita. Because what she's seeing is the reality that it's, it's still a debate we're waging, mm. but what I think Ruth sees is isn't any dream to be free on a land where we were enslaved futile. That's the scary question she's asking, and that is why she seems so pessimistic. And exercising, and rightly so, her autonomy over her body. I don't want to have this child. I was thinking of Tonya in King Hedley II. That whole aria where she says, I don't want to have this child. I don't want to have a child where I'm going to be worried about the ways in which he's going to die. And the kind of pragmatism of that, I think, is in Ruth. Ruth is kind of the beginning of that. I think she's the most deeply feeling, of course, the, the numbest people are the ones that feel the most... She's the one that's feeling it the most. And it's interesting because she never complains about being tired. She's the most tired of all of them. She's awake first and she has to wake everyone up. And everyone says that Benita is Lorraine Hansberry's proxy. And she is in many ways. But I think towards the end of her life, Ruth is her proxy. I don't think she ever gave up. I think she was always an optimist. But that kind of acceptance of what the present reality is, I think Ruth sees things as it is. And it has stifled her ability to dream in present conditions. You know, I listen, my dad's a DJ, so I grew up with all this reggae. And as Nietzsche was saying to someone yesterday, as a child, I would listen to the music and I would be like, oh, why is he playing this again? And as an adult, I listen to it and I'm like, oh, there's stuff in here that I need to hear. The stuff they're talking about is so deeply liberatory. There's a recognition of their present condition and an acceptance that they will never truly receive their freedom from white people or the white powers that be. It's that phrase, you're not going to find your happiness where you lost it. If I look to the person that took away my freedom to give me freedom, I will never truly be free. Mm. I think that's what Ruth is grappling with. She never says it in the play directly she doesn't have those monologues or arias that uh Walter Lee or Benita or Asagai have but I think that's what's going on for her I think it's really interesting so I guess Nigeria probably would have been liberated the year after this play came out like 1960 or so I'm really moved by what you say about the value of somebody like Ruth going to a place like Nigeria I travel a lot for my work and I've been to many majority black countries and the feeling that you get in them is very different you know like mm. to give you two examples like when i went to, the last place i went was south africa oh, wow. about four years ago and when i was in south africa i was like th this was a place where racial division was palpable in every movement you make in the same way that it is in america you know what i mean and it, i felt the opposite in nigeria like nigeria was a place where i felt like everybody there there was this comfort in their own skin you know what i mean like like the, like there were a lot of problems in nigeria mm. with the military dictatorships and stuff but the relationships of people among each other felt very different it, it did feel like maybe not at that particular moment in history, but I could imagine the value of somebody who feels what you feel when you live in America being transplanted in a place like that, where mm -hmm. 
you know, it's not just about the fact that black people are in the majority or whatever, but there's this, there's this, there's this other feeling there that I think I could imagine being incredibly restorative for somebody. And the experiences that I've had as a young adult and as a teenager as well of like going to the Caribbean, I've not been to any country, I haven't been to Nigeria, but like living in Trinidad, for example, completely changed my way of doing things because suddenly I started to go, oh, well, this time I thought it was me and I wasn't doing something properly. And maybe this is bigger than me. Maybe the things I'm perceiving that I think are just, oh, why do I feel so bad today, are a consequence of the social context within which I live. This kind of thing of like, who is responsible for, to be honest, my poor mental health. And that comes through the prism of being all the things that I am, a black woman, a queer woman, all of that stuff growing up in London in the 21st century in the time I was born how it can often feel like well you I am just not doing something because everyone else seems to be okay even though they're not and I think that Ruth is almost a seer in that sense she sees I think in a way she sees it isn't her and the futility of dreaming within a structure to an extent wherein the structure will only allow you to realize the fruits of your dream if they see you as human and within that context, you're not seen as a full human. And I think she sees that. So I wonder what Nigeria would be for her. That's, it's interesting because I've never read it, but there's a production of Beneath This Place, which is Kwame Kweyama's riff. Well, it's a kind of sequel to this play set in Nigeria when she moves with Asagai to Nigeria. I've never read it. But I think the thing that would really interest me is what is, what does a settled woman look like in a place like Nigeria? How does that revive her? Can we find freedom? by going to the mother country, by going into the belly of the oppressor, because that's what my ancestors did in the Windrush generation. And they came and we've never moved back. My family hasn't. But the dream of a lot of people was to go and come back, go and come back. And they never went back. This whole thing of getting stuck. And I think in my generation, what I'm seeing, especially most of my community is artistic, I'm seeing us have this desire to go back and not being understood by the generation above. We work so hard to get you here. If I grew up within the context my, my maternal grandmother grew up in, why I understand when I say to her, I want to live in Trinidad and she gets upset. I get her upset because the context, the life I'm living now to her, she grew up on a farm in Jamaica and I didn't realize she grew up in such a rural working class atmosphere. So what I'm doing as an artist and as a creator, as a writer, as an actress, and, you know, all the things that I get up to in my creative life would not be possible if she stayed in that context and I don't want to discredit that dream that she had but at the same time is true liberation and freedom really possible because the things that I think Lorraine Hansbury was experiencing as a black artist the obstacles and how that infiltrates creativity um I'm I'm again as Asagai says I live the answer I live the answer, I live the legacy of that, and the loop is bigger, as he's talking about. But that kind of... Oh, I don't care if it gets me in trouble. But you do enter spaces as a playwright, especially when your play is hot or you've got attention around it, where you start to realise that the people you are around, in sometimes very conservative and white spaces, have not engaged with the politics of what you've written. And, you know, I think of that all the time and what that must have been like to her. She was fiercely intelligent and would have been fiercely aware of this and what that must have done to her emotionally and mentally and how she dealt with that, knowing that I'm being uplifted by people that are still 
deeply racist in their practices and mm. the way that they choose to move through the world and interact with black people and probably one of the only black people they interact with mm. and what that would have done to her because that would not have been the intention of her writing this play you know i what i really relate i relate to so many of her diaries I think about but what i really relate to is you know there's those anecdotes of like her former husband being like you just need to write and I'm so fascinated the older I get by those barriers to creativity and the kind of, and I've had it now, second album syndrome. What's my second thing going to be? Are people going to compare it to the first? Not wanting to even get to your work because before you can even get to your work, which is a universal thing is nice, but I'm interested in her context and my context as black artist and queer artist. What it is to not be able to even start your work because you're already jumping forward in time People are going to think this, this and that, and no one will let me do this. And mm. how that annihilates creativity. That's a thing that, it's funny because I think more and more that is becoming my work. Uh, so right. within that, within talking about dreaming within Erasing the Sun, how was she exploding? How was her ability to dream, even as one of these exceptional black artists, considered and considered in that manner by the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, how was her ability to dream stifled? How was her creativity stifled? Even within that context where she had maximum access to resources. What was that for her? That's the thing that fascinates me about her. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Libraries, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.